Hello, everybody, and welcome to A Biblical Frame, where we are looking at current events from a biblical theological perspective. My name is Ed Gerber, and I will be your host for today once again. And uh, I'm going to allow my guests to briefly introduce themselves. Ivan De Silva, Trinity Western University. Stephen Dunning, for this one, I'm the co-founder, co-director of the Inklings Institute of Canada at Trinity Western. Uh, Jens Zimmerman, Regent College. So today we are going... Oh, yes, Douglas, please. Douglas Farrell, uh, Theology and Ethics at McGill University in Montreal, and happy to be with you. We're so glad you can be here. The reason I almost skipped Douglas is because he's joining us on Zoom. So uh, we're grateful for this technology. Our, Our last episode was on technology, and we certainly are grateful for this form of technology. So today we thought we'd uh, try a bit of an interesting topic. Um, We have some scholars in our midst who um, have read and are pretty well-versed in C.S. Lewis and or G.K. Chesterton and or some of these great, wonderful luminaries. And one of the things that struck me is how prescient these folks were in seeing the kinds of things that we would be struggling with today and or seeing in our culture today. And I thought it would be very interesting to kind of go back in time and to see what somebody like Lewis or somebody like Chesterton Um, as they were looking into the future and or looking at the seeds of what were present in their own generation, uh, we're seeing we're going to come about in our day today. I think, you know, what they saw the seed of or the tiny little plant has now kind of, it's coming into its full flowering or at least it's mid-flowering. And so, we're going to just kind of explore Lewis, Chesterton, and maybe some some of the others uh, this afternoon. It is the afternoon for us, and uh, see where that goes, because these individuals had tremendous insight and wisdom to share with us uh, about how to live in the world today as Christians and how to think about what's going on in the world today. So, Stephen, I invite you, if you will, uh, to share with us a little bit of what you've got prepared for us. Right, well, thank you. Um, I know that some of this might be a bit, it might seem a bit technical, but we can uh, unpack it later if you want. Anyway, in outlining C.S. Lewis's critique of what he calls applied science, I will consider briefly two of his works, The Abolition of Man and its fictional counterpart, That Hideous Strength. Both works have proven to be incisive and prescient. The Abolition of Man was first delivered as a series of three evening lectures at King's College, Newcastle, part of the University of Durham, as the Riddell Memorial Lectures on February 24th to 26th, 1943. The central claim of the work, which begins as a critique of certain approaches to then-contemporary education, is that the world is structured qualitatively, and he cites both moral and aesthetic imperatives, and it's thus the educator's primary task to inculcate in students the capacity to respond appropriately to these objective standards, and I use scare quotes around objective because he does not consider them to be objects at all, but rather qualities of reality itself that transcend any merely subjective source. His discussion about the sublimity of the waterfall, for example, makes this clear. He takes strong exception to educators who reduce the claim of sublimity to mere statements of how the waterfall makes someone feel. 
Lewis wants to invert the locus of significance, as it were. The, sub- the sublimity of the waterfall is one of its qualities, which in turn demands certain things of the observer or the subject. Moreover, Lewis goes on to insist that observers can get it wrong, can fail to adopt an appropriate stance towards what they encounter, and getting it right depends upon proper training. Training must come first, and then proper reasoning later. Lewis's critique eventually expands to embrace certain aspects of modernity, particularly the rise of science. Lewis writes, quote, The serious magical endeavor and the serious scientific endeavor are twins. The one was sickly and died, the other strong and throve. They were born of the same impulse, end quote. And what is this impulse? Quote, there is something which unites magic and applied science while separating both from the wisdom of earlier ages. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution is a technique. Mm. Uh, and this will pick up on some of the stuff mm-hmm. we talked about in the earlier one. Okay, thus the problem for Lewis is twofold. Applied science rejects the ancient wisdom that insists human conform their souls to reality, and the source of that rejection is in part science's exclusion of qualities from its purview. It restricts itself to purely quantitative analysis and thus strips the world of any kind of legitimate teleology, that is, ends. We can and do act, but we have no reason to prefer one form of action to any other. Indeed, much of the book consists in Lewis's debunking of the efforts of applied science to substitute something for the Tao, that is, a word he uses for the universal moral law, which it it rejects, which science rejects. So, what takes the place of the Tao in modern science and applied science? The two works answer the question in significantly different ways. In The Abolition of Man, He answers it negatively, as it were. Instead of a presence, that is, the Tao, we have an absence, a loss of reason, a loss of human sovereignty, since it's only in the Tao that humans can transcend or escape brute appetite and instinct, which for Lewis reduces finally to a meaningless causality, sort of driven by appetites we don't understand. In his critique, he, as it were, assumes that reality is as science describes it, namely, essentially meaningless because stripped of quality. Lewis thus displays for his readers a beautiful reductio ad absurdum, insisting that science's final conquest of nature proves to be nothing less than nature's conquest of us. His point is simple and yet profound. By rejecting the Tao, or natural law, As a motivation for action, the scientific controllers must substitute something to which they appeal for their authority. And all of these, according to Lewis, must prove to be either isolated and hence incomplete fragments of the Tao, or a form of mere material causality, such as instinct or life force. So we see this reduction of the human in some of the characters in that hideous strength. Scientists like Foster, who discover that more and more often they simply do things without knowing or caring why. But reality abhors a vacuum. And in the novel That Hideous Strength, published in 1945, in which Lewis attempts to flesh out what he called the serious point that he made in The Abolition of Man, he goes beyond the claim that meaninglessness or irrationality is the ultimate plague that we've unleashed upon ourselves by rejecting the Tao. 
Here he answers the question of what replaces the Tao positively. Foster, who's one of the scientists I mentioned, like all of those making up NICE, (laughs) which is the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, he has not simply surrendered himself to the meaningless processes of nature, but rather to malevolent spiritual forces, what he calls the microbes that communicate to NICE's leadership through the horrific mumblings of a disembodied head. If you haven't read the novel, it's worth seeing just for that part. Lewis's point? The real head of NICE is not Withers, who's the nominal director, or any other member of the inner circle, and not even the base processes of material nature, but rather those enemies of the good itself, once heavenly creatures who rejected the Tao, and now find themselves confined to sublunary existence. And by the way, as an aside, by restricting evil to the sphere between the moon and the earth, he actually goes back to an old medieval idea that this is the area of the universe which is subject to fortune, to randomness and chaos. It's kind of interesting. Anyway, the real battle is not against flesh and blood, and because of what Lewis identifies as the folly and hubris of the scientific enterprise, science in its current form, and he he distinguishes this from a love of pure knowledge in and for itself, the science he's going after is applied to the shaping and direction of human nature. And he makes it clear that that is not on the side of the angels, unless it's the fallen angels. Lewis was also eerily prescient about what we've witnessed from governments during COVID, what I would describe as a form of scientific activism. Think of all the calls to, quote, follow the science, as if science spoke univocally in support of whatever the current policy happened to be. As an aside, this required everyone to consign yesterday's policies to the memory hole and to ignore or, disport or distort what was happening in other jurisdictions, say Florida or Sweden. So that hideous strength goes to macabre and at times comic lengths to demonstrate that the enemy of these scientific activists, that is these controllers, as Lewis calls them in The Abolition of Man, or directors of NICE in the novel, the biggest enemy for them is clarity of thought, clarity of speech. The essential problem, according to Lewis in both these works, is, I suggested earlier, that the activists have rejected the only source of real authority through which they could justify the ends they seek to achieve. And yet they're compelled to act, motivated by ends that they can only vaguely articulate. And they most certainly do not want to look carefully at the concrete reality experienced by those who fall victim to the means they use to achieve these vague ends. You might think about the trucker convoy and the reaction to some of the people who didn't like the being subjected to the means of our current controllers. Unless, of course, they are self-confessed sadists like Fairy Hardcastle. Lewis has a lot of fun with the names in the novel. He's got Withers and Fairy Hardcastle and Foster and so forth. Anyway, thus, in the place of clarity of speech and vision, we get plat- platitudinous generalities and willful blindness And as an aside, I'm struck by how these observations resonate with the late philosopher Roger Scruton's description of the new left's, he calls it the nonsense machine, in Fools, Frauds, and Firebrands, not to mention Orwell's observations in Politics and the English Language, which which was written a, a little after Lewis's two works, about, this is key, all political corruption requires a concomitant corruption of language. The enemy of all totalitarian movements is clarity of thought, a good thing for us to remember. So at one point towards the end of the novel, 
Merlin declares the following about those assembled for a banquet at Belbury, and Belbury is the headquarters of Nice. Quote, those who have despised the word of God, from them shall the word of man be taken away. Here Lewis makes explicit the link to the epigraph he uses for the novel describing the Tower of Babel. And I'm going to pick up on something you said earlier. This is the quotation. It's from, it's from an older version, but it says, The shadow of that hideous strength, six mile or more it is of length. So that's the epigraph to the novel is about the Tower of Babel. In the Banquet at Belbury chapter, in which Babel reigns unrestrained by the word of God, Lewis lays out graphically the choice that confronts humanity at the crossroads. Life governed by the Tao or by the Babel of hell? Transhumanists take note. In closing, I should also mention Lewis's astute insistence in the abolition of man that rather than giving mankind power over nature, applied science gives a few, that is the active, the activist controllers, unprecedented power over the remainder of mankind, including all previous generations and future generations, a point that philosopher Margaret Somerville also makes in The Ethical Imagination. Lewis saw clearly that the project was about power, nothing more, nothing less, since, as he points out repeatedly, one cannot step outside the Tao, that is, despise the word of God, as Merlin puts it, and hope for a bright future. A fact that those who framed the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms got exactly right in the preamble to their eternal credit, and this is what they said, whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Thanks. Mm. should give us something to think about. <laughs> Absolutely. So one question for you, if I might, Stephen, sure. right off the top. Um, I love this line that uh, Lewis said that the greatest enemies of the scientists or the controllers, nice, is clarity of thought and clarity of speech. That's what I. That's what I think Orwell said, and I think it's implied. Oh, okay, but it comes out of I don't know if you know, but Orwell in 1946 wrote Politics in the English Language, around almost exactly the same time. But Orwell was writing this at a time when, especially in Germany, they were thinking about Reconstruction. A lot of people had a lot of ideas, and Orwell was basically saying to them, "You want to fix the world? Start with your language." Because one of the things we see today is the denigration <clears throat> of language. Words don't mean what they meant a year ago. Mm-hmm. And you're constantly kept on your back heels because um, you're always waiting to commit some kind of offense uh, in, the, in the way you're using your language. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think the connection would be, uh, from what Stephen has just said, um, a certain kind of nominalism that you have to have. Um, what I mean by that is this disjunction between what philosophers call the, the disjunction between mind and being, or you know, the, the disengagement from the, the Tao, as, as Lewis mm-hmm. would say, so that our language doesn't have to conform to reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I find that frightening in many ways, and I haven't seen such a good example of it um, as during the COVID crisis, when actually also medical language gets rewritten, you know, mm. what, what uh, natural immunity no longer exists. Um, what the vaccine is gets redefined uh, into... Not into, to mention pandemic. And not to mention pandemic, <laughs> that, that was a starter. And, and, a, and vaccine. And a lot of, and a lot yeah. of practices that, that we had um, established on the basis of, you know, what reality is like and so on, just got rewritten, turned over, uh, overturned, sorry, and um, 
changed and then and then you need to massage that into the general media language so that people pick it up and indeed they do and they have and that to me is just a frightening reconfiguration of of reality which can really only happen once you've divorced you know the mind from reality i i will say as far as language goes that i mean this isn't about a left-right thing, essentially, but I will say that progressives and activists in general have understood far more the importance of controlling language, mm-hmm. control the game. You can, if you can control language and what things mean, you, you, you're halfway there to winning the game. And that's why the biggest pushback, I think, that's why Rod Dreher in Live Not By Lies is exactly right. Solzhenitsyn, and we had, you know, you were talking about that, I think, a few weeks ago, but he's right, is that that's one of the places where you can really just stand your ground and just say, no, let's, let's understand what we're talking about here and, and not allow lies to come through. And Lewis really, really understood that well. Nice, everything, everything. He, he sets up, let me just say about the, that hideous strength. There are two camps in the novel. There's nice, which is this activist controllers who are taking over a village and really have terrible plans for, for humanity. And then there's the, the Christian organization, which is kind of a more organic thing, but there's clarity of thought in this. There's clear speech, and there, there's a, an attempt to come to understanding. All of Nice lives in a fog. And the funny thing is, two of the main characters, the wife ends up in St. Anne's, which is the, mm. uh, the, the Christian side of the thing. And with Nice, the husband gets separated. He gets drawn into this world. And he can never find out what he's supposed to be doing. He can never get a clear answer. And he, he lives in this kind of... And, and Lewis is... It's, it's very interesting when he shows the difference in good and evil. Evil does not like clarity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was thinking about the role of cliches and platitudes mm-hmm. in this campaign, this propaganda campaign as well. And it connects for me to Paralandra, or Voyage to Venus, where at one point, when the unman begins to believe that he's losing the argument with Ransom... And Ransom stands his ground. The unman continues to repeat the exact same thing over and over again. And then he just gets louder and more maniacal as he continues to repeat, um, as though he's going to win the argument by sheer repetition. But what we're seeing today with the media, I've seen clips where the um, the media outlets, major mainline uh, media outlets, repeat the identical phrases that are are going through the whole kind of, uh, you know, the whole media reel, as it were. And people just absorb this stuff, and they believe it. Yeah, it's interesting. What do you... I'll just add something else. Lewis's definition of nature, that is, what he sees as nature being... Um, stripped of qualities, when he uses nature in the sense of being like the causal reductive view, he argues that that view of nature is something that science is producing. It's not something that's out there. It is a production of a certain set of, you know, values. I think in that he's very, very prescient as well. That um, Anyway, it's... Is it the kind of thing where he says, you know, um, scientists will describe a star and they'll say, well, it's very gaseous and it's all this heat and superheat. He says, but that's not what a star is. That's just what it's made of. Yeah. 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 It's this reduction to, uh, to, to quantity. 
It's interesting that <clears throat> we have clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And um, it's interesting to me that <clears throat> those go together. In order to think, you've got to be able to speak. <clears throat> and it's a complicated process, but your thought and speech are connected. You, you, we basically think <clears throat> with our speech. And we can also think in images, I think. But, but um, in order to be able to think properly, we, we've got to be able to talk it out. And so if you want to control people's thoughts, I suppose one of the easiest ways to do that is to control their speech. And then you can guide them and direct them into the thoughts that you want them to have. And um, I don't know about the rest of the room, but I'm living in a, in a time that is unprecedented where our speech is being um, directed in certain directions. And um, <clears throat> I think the, with the idea being that we will then have to think in this way. Mm-hmm. I have never lived in a time where we have so much limitation on what we can say and what we cannot say and what's correct to say and what's not correct to say. And, and, it, and it's, it's affecting everything from the scientific stuff that we've seen happening here to gender, biological stuff, to uh, even God in the, uh, in the sense with people like um, the species author and so forth. So in order to be able to think properly, you have to have freedom of speech. And um, if you take that away, I think we have real uh, problems. And what is fascinating to me is to look at the, um, the chapters in the Bible, the first chapter and the third chapter, and to see how God used speech in the creation account to bring about order out of chaos, to create uh, light and goodness and life and all of this, and how two chapters later, the serpent, uh, the figure of the devil, uses speech to undo it all, to turn it all back into chaos again. And that's all he used. Uh, The serpent could not influence the human beings in any other fashion than by speech. All he could do was talk to them. He couldn't get inside of them and force them to do anything. He could just stand outside and speak to them. But what is fascinating to me about that is that God did not cancel him. You know, even though he spoke lies about God, blasphemy, we would say, uh, that uh, God was lying to them and all of this stuff, God let him have his speech. And didn't say, you cannot say that about me. Uh, these are the only words you're allowed to speak about me and so forth. And so he let the serpent uh, speak all of these things about him, knowing full well the damage is going to do and so forth. And if God didn't restrict speech in that sense, and the Bible does not restrict speech, it, um, it tells you how to speak wisely, but uh, it God created the, the, the mouth and the lips and so forth and gave us the power to speak. Do we submit to anybody else that tells us we must only speak in these words, like uh, Trudeau is trying to do right now with this um, disinformation and so mm-hmm. forth committees that he's striking up? Well, look, when Jesus is tempted by the devil, he, he, gives him his, he gets to say his peace. But Jesus also 
has a piece to say. That's right. And that's <laughs> you, you fight bad speech with good speech. Exactly. You fight truth speech with uh, a false speech with truth speech. But it's a battle of words. Uh, what do you think of – I know you, you want to get in there, but what do you think of this idea that Lewis is equating the certain, like a certain approach to science, applied science, that is science that would step outside the Tao? What do you – he equates it with two mi- things, magic and Babel. Now, you know, that's quite interesting. Now, why is that? Uh, those, are, those are very powerful metaphors. It's a fair synopsis, just in, if I heard you correctly, um, you said prior to, or in certain civilizations, we would attempt to conform the soul to reality. Exactly. But the flip is now we are trying to conform reality, in a sense, to the soul. And I think we do, we do see that in some ways with um, kind of a therapeutic deism, and what I feel is of the supreme importance, and I'm going to um, use all the technological powers available to me in order to make my body or other parts of reality conform to what I want the world to be, rather than the Tao or how the world actually is. Well, if you look at Ray Kurzweil, if you he was you know he's one of the premier. Hmm transhumanists. If you look at the kind of world he wants to create, so I mean, Lewis is always saying, well, well, on what basis are you going to shape humanity? Well, his, it's really just about, you know, a little bit more easy sex and maybe no struggles. I mean, it's just incredible. It's like, he, it's kind of like this soft, porn, bodiless existence that he kind of imagines. And it's like, all of this technological power and all of this brain power used to produce that? Yeah. And it's because there's nothing else. Yeah. What else are they going to appeal to? A higher, like, uh, because that's exactly what they're trying to escape. Mm. What they're trying to escape is the fact of limitation. In fact, even the limitation that gives them real freedom, you know, the, like a meaningful freedom. Uh, but anyway. Paul, Paul says at one point of the Gentiles pre-Christ, having lost all sensitivity, they're given over to sensuality with a continual lust for more. And that's where the transhumanists want to take, which is weird. I mean, if you think about it, like, why don't they just, well, like, it's because they want to live forever. The real thing they're after is, is mortality. And, immortality. And, and it's, there's a Christian immortality, but the problem with that is you have to die mm-hmm. in every sense at different mm-hmm. levels. And what the transhumanists want, and if you want immortality without death, then you're going to end up with something like with a nightmare. That's what Lewis is basically saying. You're going to end up with a nightmare. Mm. There's, there's, I want to turn to something uh, that you said earlier. I'm not sure if we can pull this off, but um, because you, it's free speech, right? You said free speech is very important. We often hear, though, that free speech needs to be limited to, um, you know, my not being violated by your free speech, right? Which is a, which is a good virtue to have. And my point is that if you, if you do this disassociation from the Tao, Right, this unhooking of the mind from reality in a shared life world where you can argue objectively about values because they're intrinsic to that life world, then then those virtues they become also distorted and unhinged because now my my freedom or my you know um, so you're not violating my freedom by your freedom of speech becomes my right not to be offended by anything that I feel is offensive. Whether it's, you know, and, and that's what we're really stuck with. I and think it's just power. 
Yeah, then it just, just becomes power. It's a race to the bottom, and if it happens to be a victim, it's like it's the victimhood Olympics. And here you go, power, tribalism, cancel culture, Twitter culture, right? So I'm saying that all of that is connected to mm-hmm. uh, what Lewis so presciently well, saw. If you think, I like your point about if we're working within the Tao, people who disagree, and he says this, he says, you know, that the, the master works upon the trunk of the Tao. This is a, it's a, it's a Chinese... Uh, saying but it works upon the trunk and the point is that there is room for development over time but it has to be from within it so if you have interlocutors who are working within as you say a shared life world Mm. then the issue isn't really so much free speech isn't a problem where free speech becomes a problem is where it's a zero-sum game where if i can shut you up i win and that's Mm -hmm. the problem and as soon as you step outside the doubt because it's like the only prize is power that's yeah. it. There's nothing yeah. else. Yeah. So, I mean, and Lewis understood that perfectly. Anyway. I mean, I, I want to draw um, Doug Farrow in a bit um, by just making, going back to what you said earlier, Stephen, which is that the so-called advancement of technology uh, to conquer nature, mm-hmm. as Lewis says, usually we end up having very few people dominate mm-hmm. the rest of mankind or the other people by means of technology because they're the ones they're now putting now that there is no shared life world they're putting out the vision of what reality is supposed to be what our humanity is supposed to be mm-hmm. um and a lot of people or like a lot of people i know have claimed that that's kind of what's happening with this rise of totalitarian control uh in in the last two years um and you can link that to a technological vision of um, you know, a definition of what the pandemic is and then a de- definition of what the solution is, which is this this new technology of these mRNA vaccines and so on, which gets then linked to all kinds of surveillance technologies. Um, and, and there, I think, there, there the specter arises that a lot of people are afraid of, that you have, uh, you know, these few financial barons, uh, the industrial uh, technological complex... Um, the the World Economic Forum and places like that imposing a form of control by few on the many, all disguised as for the sake of saving the planet. Um, I was just, I was would like to um, hear Doug on that and whether Chesterton had in any way envisioned something like that, maybe, or saw something like that. Yes, he certainly did, and Lewis learned, I think. Uh, quite a lot from Chesterton. Uh, uh, Before saying a word or two about the latter, uh, it's worth mentioning Lewis's little essay, Willing Slaves of the Welfare State. Um, (laughs) That's an essay of only three or four pages, but in it he he discusses the, um, the, the fact, as he sees it, that that a couple of things are converging to change um, the situation in which we're living. One is the advance of technology and, and of the science uh, technology nexus. And the other he describes as a changed relation between, between government and, and uh, citizens or subjects Mm. as, as this um, view of science uh, that was mentioned earlier by Stephen, this this view of of science uh, that is analogous to 
to to magics um, or takes an analogous view of the world um, because it is about manipulating the world. As as that view advances, particularly in the sphere of technology, um, and the world becomes more and more something we simply manipulate to our own uh, advantage. We'll have to bracket the question of what really is to our advantage, though he does not bracket it. But um, but as we see the world more and more uh, in the in those terms, um, governments also see their citizenry or their subjects more and more in those terms. Mm. So so humans are not viewed as. Uh, so much as they were in the classical tradition, particularly in, in Christendom, as, as bearers of dignity and of, of rights. Uh, but increasingly, they're, they're viewed as people with um, various kinds of problems which need to be solved by government. So, so government gets into the, the business of of trying to um, make humans better, to cure humans. Even, even the justice system is no longer about determining guilt and assigning appropriate uh, punishment um, or restraint. It's about curing people. Mm-hmm. And so as, as, these, um, as these ideas converge and advance together, uh, we perhaps shouldn't be so surprised that the government is allying the governments of the world and especially of the West, but also in, in places like China are aligning with uh, private enterprise and, and with, um, with those who develop and of course profit from technology to, to tinker with human beings um, they ally with the media to tinker with their minds and their perceptions of the world. They align with with the technologists and even the scientists to tinker with their bodies, with their genome, with their with their genetic structures, and even with their immune systems. And a, a lot of what I have read and seen during the last couple of years um, suggests to me that that the the policies and approach uh, approach that has been taken to the pandemic um, is heavily influenced in just that way. It, it, the whole thing has been an experiment in to use that that term that is you know is bandied about these days because it's to be found in both in theoretical documents and in government policy documents, but to nudge, whole groups of people, psychologically in particular directions, and even to nudge their immune systems and to nudge their, their, their actual um, genetic makeup in, in particular directions. And, and of course, you know, that's an experiment. We, we, we don't know exactly what we're doing when we do this kind of thing, but it's done in the name of progress. It's done in the name of of um, making humans better. It's done in a kind of, um, uh, you know, the sort of soteriological uh, aim and purpose. And so Lewis in that little essay, Willing Slaves of the Welfare State, 
um, comes around to to saying, look, you know, I mean, he's very frank. He says, I I, I dread government in the name of science. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> the scientists don't know any more than the next person about what really makes for human flourishing. And the, the last thing you want, in a way, is a, is a, is a political slash scientific or technological consortium that orders your whole life. And, and he sees our lives being increasingly planned uh, by techno- technocrats. Mm-hmm. And, and so he comes around to asking us the question, um, you know, we, we permit that because we see certain advantages to it. But he asks us, can we really hope to extract the honey from this, from this hive of technocratic activity wow. without being stung? And he, of course, doesn't think that's possible. Why? Because for all our talk about making humans better, the, the, the basic nature of fallen human beings has not changed. There's, there's the, the lust for domination that that uh there's the, there's a principle that power corrupts and the more power we give to people who are subject to this lust for domination and that's all of us the more power we give to particular ones uh the more they will use these these technological instruments and these instruments of mass communication to manipulate and control the rest of us which brings us full circle to where Stephen started us. They, their, their vision of, of man is not really qualitative, but quantitative. That's the kind of thing that technology can deal with. That's the kind of thing statisticians can deal with. That's the kind of thing that algorithms can deal with. So that's what they use and 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 the medium is the message and and it and it it nudges us in the direction they want to go but as lewis points out they don't actually have any kind of 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 good map that's why they need lack of clarity that's why they need ambiguity that's why they need to change the meaning of words at you know at their own whim and will uh, not not merely to concede to, to confuse us or to deceive us, but because they themselves don't know what they're doing. Exactly, they're not describing. They're in a sense confabulating. They're not yes. describing reality as they see it and discover it, and as reality reveals itself, as it were. But they have to confabulate in order to fit. Uh, they know not what they do. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. the key. Um, I just wanted to say two things. Philip Reef in the 1960s came out with a book that was crucial that, that connects to this. It's The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Yeah. And that was a he it was very insightful. Now, the essay that really works, another Lewis essay that really works uh, for understanding the novel is what he calls the humanitarian view of punishment. And they, they espouse this idea... Uh, explicitly in the novel, the people who are directing this program of applied science, they do not put people in jail for retributive justice or any kind of sense of objective justice, but because the people are ill and the people need to be fixed. It's like the retraining camps for the Uyghurs and everything else we've Mm -hmm. got. But the point is, and that's where you're going to get retraining camps. But what's interesting is that Lewis points out in that essay that the worst totalitarianism that you can imagine is when you take a person's freedom 
and you put it into the hands of some supposed therapeutic technocrat, he says you're much better off in the hands of a jury of your peers where you've actually done a, committed a crime and you do your time if you need to and you can get out because you have your dignity. He says, but you become a subject. And Lewis was very, very nervous of this idea of the shift towards a therapeutic because the worst soft totalitarianism is still totalitarianism and you don't want to fall into the hands of people who are going to make you better. Wow. Okay, I have, no. I have, I have a uh, that, Yeah, go ahead, Doug. Well, that that of course is is where Chesterton began uh this uh, his analysis of this whole problem. And and um so behind all of this we could say is his book Eugenics and Other Evils where where he is responding to a movement in the British Parliament in the uh, first couple of years of the second decade of the 20th century to um, to produce um, legislation that would give the state the power to take control of the lives of people that were judged to be in some fashion uh, deficient or incompetent in in social affairs, including their own affairs, and so um, this the the name of this bill in the short form that Chesterton gave it is simply the Feeble Minded Act. Um, it's an act to allow the government to take charge of the lives of those who are 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 not quite sharp enough to take charge of their own lives, and Chesterton points out there that that this is um, an open-ended program that depends entirely on who's doing the deciding mm -hmm. as to whether someone is feeble-minded or not. And, um, and he also, of course, uh, examines its roots in eugenics, which had, which had um, emerged at the end of the previous century in a big way and was taking, uh, getting a lot of momentum. And, and out of that, he built his whole analysis in eugenics and other evils of a highly technocratic state that, um, that erects its scaffolding of power around society. And, and I think the allusion to, to Babel is, mm -hmm. is deliberate. Um, by way of a health tyranny mm -hmm. it's it's not it's it's mental health but it's also physical health and so it's a hygienic tyranny so already back he was he was working on this before the first world war it was his work was interrupted by the war um and and then resumed immediately afterwards but uh but already then he could see the whole um, trajectory of this project, which we are witnessing uh, in, in a very powerful way, unfolding before our own eyes and affecting our own lives. Mm -hmm. Wow. Neil Plantiga once said that the infernal embarrassment of the devil is that he has to use the good things of God in order to achieve his diabolical ends. That's not a quote, it's a paraphrase. But, um, and they're looking for our good. What the serpent does is he seeks Eve and Adam's good. 
God is a cheapskate. He's withholding good things from you. Don't you know, if only you eat, you could be like God. The irony of that text actually is, if you read the chapter before, they are already made like God. So, um, he's offering what they already have in any event. Um, I have, um, there's so much to say on this. I, um, a number of questions for both for Doug and Stephen, really. Like one would be, um, Doug, do you think? And I don't want to, I don't want to push in the direction. Don't want to talk about. But do you think that this, um, what Chester talked about with eugenics, um, is in some sense, you know, not in exact same sense, but in some sense happens when we separate people out between, you know, the the, the pure who are vaccinated and. Um, you know, are, are therefore, uh, you know, disease-free and so on and so forth, and the unvaccinated um, who are then quickly um, described as, you know, um, unclean, um, they, they mess up the thing. Um, I'm just really wondering, like, this lang- the language certainly was around, and it was frightening to me to hear it uh, in this context. That's one question. Another question I have, um, maybe more to you than to Stephen, is... Um, it's so clear what we've said that that the planning technocratic society, the surveillance society, the kind of society we've described that seems to be wanted by somebody is utterly dependent on a, a reductive anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it? Why is it that the intelligent, educated do not see this? Why is it that often the people like the you know I don't I don't want to make this dichotomy, but more. People we don't associate with the higher intelligible, the higher intelligent, you know, educated worker, like the truckers and so on, that they instinctively feel this and, and, and cry out for freedom. And why is it then the educated come back and say, you just want, you have this naive idea of freedom and your, your, you know, cries for freedom, they impinge on our rights for safety. Why is it that the educated don't see it and, uh, and others instinctively feel that this reductive anthropology will stop? at nothing but complete annihilation of freedom, if you let it run. Um, and then my last question is to Stephen, uh, and both to Doc also. Uh, is, is this in part why in Lewis's works it always ends in violence, like in this, right? Um, in the Space Trilogy. Mm-hmm. Paralandra 2. Paralandra 2, right? Yeah. So the argument in the end is not one, but Ransom has to kill. Mm-hmm. And he just his educated mind doesn't seem to understand that that is an option, because he thought he had to win this by argument. But in the end, it comes through. I think I think I'm supposed to stop this person mm-hmm. in his violence. And then in in the hideous strength, it ends in violence. Mm-hmm. You know. And so it's it's the outcome if you keep going this way. Ultimately, also going to be some ugliness. Well, um, you could read the violence. book of Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, those those are my. I don't know. I'll see how you guys respond. Douglas? Well, I'm, I'm tempted to respond to the first question by saying that in the sphere of education, uh, the corruption of, of the academic mind is, um, is evident in the success of the EDI uh, type of agenda and program. Um, I know that some of you probably think that EDI stands for equity, diversity, and inclusion. But I'm here to tell you that it actually stands for for equality with God, divergence from God, and iniquity before God. 
And and this, you know, the, the, the average intellectual may not be all caught up in what, you know, a, 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 a fiery preacher would call iniquity before God, or might be. Um, but but this this attempt to to treat humanity as something that can invent or reinvent itself at will is is so so far ingrained now in in our intelligentsia that it has become uh, rather stupid, frankly. And, and, and of course, the, the term intelligentsia originally had uh, that, that connotation of, of those who think they're smart and are not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so um, yeah, it, it's become clear that we cannot rely on our intelligentsia. Um, they, they, are, they are providing either the, the technology that is used for manipulation or the ideas that govern and guide the, the uh, manipulation, but they are not um, providing uh, the, the wisdom that, uh, that they were uh, supposed to be providing. So I don't know, maybe somebody else wants to speak to the first question, but I confess to having become quite cynical. Mm. Um, the long march through the institutions I think I think that's exactly what it is. I think the this is one of these top down problems, and I think that I think that the left, particularly the activist left, that came out of the Frankfurt School, and they were extremely uh, intelligent uh, and diabolically intelligent in the way they, that they went about capturing the institutions. They did a very good job, and it's just about complete. And I think that's that's why I think that I, I think the capture has been complete. The other thing is. That well, anyway, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. As far as violence goes, when I think about, if you think about human history, the idea of, a, of of being able to settle conflicts between interested parties through reason came out of a, a kind of Christian humanism and an idea of, of universal human rights. The idea of reason being a universal human property that you could appeal to. But once you step outside that, it's like what we were saying about the Tao. What happens when you have people who are operating outside of that system where they have a common frame of reference? How else are you going to resolve differences? And I don't think that there is any... So I think that violence, I mean, to, to me, the, the amazing... Like the other question would be, why have we ever solved anything but through violence? What were the odd, you know, what were the weird idiosyncratic <clears throat> conditions under which we didn't end up going to war? What did that take? And I think that we just, that I think is part of the stupidity of the intelligentsia too, is that they do not recognize how rare this thing that we've achieved in the West is. And I, I do think it's a Christian, partly a Christian tradition, but the stuff that's gone into the West, it is unusual. I mean, there's a great line from Tennessee Williams, The Glass Menagerie, where he says, how beautiful it is and how easily it can be broken. Mm. And I think that, uh, anyway, the, the thing I would just say is that I think that one of the reasons that a lot of people are willing to tribalize and divide and put wedge issues in and split up societies and create these classes of people that are pariah because they don't really understand. They've been so separated 
in their little lifetimes from real violence and real social disorder that they don't do that, which is why you're getting all these warnings. I mean, Rod Dreyer, the reason he did his book, you know, uh, Live Not By Lies, is because people from uh, Czechoslovakia and who'd lived under the Soviets, what they saw happening in the States, they said, this is the prelude to nightmare, what you're actually going into. And he warned them. And I think it's because they just simply forget. We have no... Everything's gone into the memory hole, and we just sort of assume that the way we're going along, we don't realize how rare it is. And in fact, what an amazing accomplishment it was that we don't solve things through violence. Mm. But I think that if you step outside the Tao, if you step outside <clears throat> common reason, there's no other way to solve it. And, and I remember um, Louis saying something like, they may continue, like they step outside the Tao, they may continue for a little while. Exactly. In its, in its historically sedimented achievements, but what happens when that is gone? And I'm afraid that we're at a time when that is gone. That's exactly right. what's happening um, right now. That's the moment. And, and then, then the other frightening part is I was just looking at the at quotation here when he says, when Lewis says, in the abolition of man, um, those people that step outside the, the Tao and have forgotten even the historical remnants of it, he says, it's, it's not that they're bad human beings. They're not human beings at all. <laughs> Stepping outside yeah, the Tao, they've true. stepped into the void. Nor right. are there subjects, you know, and so on. You know, so that means some value is going to be put in place. And it's going to be an inhuman one, inhumane, because it's not based on uh, a more holistic and natural way of what it means for human beings to flourish. Right? We've seen that in the definition of of health, for instance. Like what counts as a definition of health used to be in classic literature, um, the wholeness of your being and all your social, historical, linguistic relations. And so it cannot possibly mean uh, to eradicate a virus at the cost of all of that. In other words, to lock you down, no matter what else happens to all these other things. But that's what we've been doing, because we were operating on this reductive anthropology. So Lewis, in his book, um, Screwtape Proposes a Toast, where he has one of the chief devils in hell uh, giving a talk to a bunch of junior devils as they're honoring a guy called Slub Glub. Uh, <laughs> You know, <laughs> Lewis plays with this idea both in his great divorce and in Screwtape Proposes a Toast that um, people who remove themselves from the good, the true, and the beautiful from moral foundations and rational foundations become unsubstantial. They lack their substantiality. Or like in George McDonald's, they become like the fairy princess. They lose their weightiness. They have no gravitas about them. The light princess. Oh, what did I call it? The fairy. The, the yeah, the fairy it. princess. Yeah, yeah. That's something yeah, else. Yeah, the yeah. light princess. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they lose their substantiality. So in the beginning of this book, Screwtape proposes a toast or the lecture of Screwtape to the Underdevils. He's, he's apologizing. There's fundamentally an apology for the lack of the quality of the meal because they're eating human souls. But the souls are of such a terrible quality um, because they really don't have the substantiality um, either of being a great saint, which makes them something you can really get your teeth into. Uh, of course, saints aren't there, but or of a great sinner. And so he's really um, lamenting in hell the, the loss of the really great sinners because the really great sinners had a very clear picture of virtue mm -hmm. and rejected it in favor of vice. And this made them truly mortal sinners. Mm -hmm. But uh, and, and part of it is what makes them lack substantiality 
um, is he says he says this a couple of quotes for you from this absolutely stunningly wonderful and prescient book once again. Uh, the difficulty lay in their very smallness and flabbiness. Here were vermin so muddled in mind, so passively responsive to environment, that it was very hard to raise them to that level of clarity and deliberateness at which mortal sin becomes possible. They do not understand either the source or the real character of the prohibitions they are breaking. Their consciousness hardly exists apart from the social atmosphere that surrounds them. And of course, we have contrived that their very language should be all smudge and blur. What would be a bribe in someone else's profession is a tip or a present in theirs. He goes on, conformity to the social environment, at first merely instinctive or even mechanical, how should a jelly not conform, now becomes an unacknowledged creed or ideal of togetherness or being like folks. I skip a few pages. There may come a time when we shall have no need to bother about individual temptation at all, except for the few. Catch the bellwether and his whole flock comes after him. He's talking about basically the madness of crowds. And then he talks about democracy and how this is kind of the word that says all men are equal. And then you've got a situation where you have to force that all are going to be exactly equal. So you have to lop some down and um, deny gifts and all these sorts of things. I, yeah. I think it was really, yeah, really it's, unbelievably it's prophetic. Essay. I remember that. So there, there's something in that um, that perhaps invites us to return to the question of violence. Um, the that that line about um, it, being agreeable as as sort of a basic um, goal is. Do you want, can you find that again and 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 read it for us again? While you're looking for it, I I will mention um, Solovyov's War Progress and the End of History, where part of his critique of what's What's been happening? Of course, he, he he published that book in 1900, so even even before Chesterton was working in the in the West. But um, but um, one of his main lines of critique was that we we had lost um, the 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 sense of a real distinction between good and evil, right. uh, in part because we had lost faith. Mainly, he said, because we had lost faith in God's victory over evil in in the cross and resurrection, particularly the resurrection of Christ. Um, and having lost it, we were laboring under an illusion that we could make progress and make the world better uh, simply by being nice, by being agreeable, mm-hmm. by being polite. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it, I worry, as as I may have said before uh, on this podcast, but I I worry that 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 Christianity is deeply infected by by that our Christianity. He was talking about the Christianity of his day, the the Christian civilization uh, that still existed in Russia, um, and and he was he was concerned that it had lost its its saltiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
he saw this happening uh, across the West, and and uh, it certainly seems to me to be happening among us. We we are so concerned to be agreeable and to be thought to be agreeable and not to be easily put into the category that the prime minister puts the feeble-minded, uh, unvaccinated people into. Um, we're we're so concerned with that um, that we avert our eyes from from the kind of problems that Lewis and Chesterton and Solovyev. Um, invite us to to face and to and to face directly. So we we commit violence against the truth in order not to be seen as violent. That is even as impolite or disagreeable or part of that that dirty rabble that gathered in Ottawa. Um, so I, uh, gather, not the not the dirty rabble that ga- <laughs> gathers in Parliament on a regular basis, but the ones that came briefly until the Emergencies Act was trotted out. Um, and and Solovyev actually pushes us to think about the the need to do uh, uh, what Lewis later has ransom doing that was mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. actually fighting the unmanned. Yeah. The, the question of the, we, we mustn't assume that violence is simply wrong. Mm-hmm. God is often violent. What we have to ask about is how the violence is directed and to what end, and whether it is still controlled by reason mm-hmm. and by moral uh, capacities. And and so Salavius wanted wanted us to think about that. Mm-hmm. And it, there's an interesting little line towards the end of that book when he's uh, telling the short tale of the Antichrist. Um, and he's describing the moment at which all hell breaks loose and a lot of violence is being done in the way of, of killing Christians. And, and he points out that the Christians who didn't take thought for their own defense die in greater proportions than the, than the ones who did. Um, so, are we are we are we ourselves becoming so flabby, in the sense that that screw tape toasts yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in screw tape in his toast uh, has this distaste for? Are we becoming so flabby uh, that 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 um, even the devil is disappointed in us? So let me let me pick this up with the quote. Here were vermin so muddled in mind, so passively responsive to environment that it was very hard to raise them to that level of clarity and deliberateness at which mortal sin becomes possible. And then let me skip to what I haven't read yet because this is so very good and picks up on what you were just saying. Democracy is the word with which you must lead them by the nose today. The good work which our philological experts have already done in the corruption of human language, makes it unnecessary to warn you that they should never be allowed to give this word a clear and definable meaning. I'm I'm skipping around here a bit, but you'll catch the drift. You are to use the word purely as an incantation, if you like, purely for its selling power. It is a name they venerate, and of course it is connected with the political ideal that men should be treated equally. You then make a stealthy transition in their minds from this political ideal to a factual belief that all men are equal. 
The delightful novelty of the present situation is that you can sanction it, make it respectable and even laudable by the incantary use of the word democratic. He's talking about envy. I'm skipping around. You can make envy sound laudable just by using the word democratic. Under the influence of this incantation, those who are in any or every way inferior can make labor more wholeheartedly and successfully than ever before to pull down everyone else to their own level. But that is not all. Under the same influence, those who come or could come nearer to a full humanity actually draw back from it for fear of being undemocratic. (laughs) And I think we have a lot of that in the church today is we are afraid of not being seen to be part of the crowd. We're not going to be uh, a part of the social cohesion that we see around us if we don't say the right shibboleths. Exactly. Language may not be used for clarity, but it's certainly used to identify tribes. Mm. I have a, a final point on the flabbiness, and we should probably start um, wrapping up. Um, um, I don't know, Doug, if you've experienced this. I've experienced this sort of reluctance uh, to be clear uh, and to assess the situation as it really has been for the sake of nicety, which mm. I think will, will do us in, um, if only within the church, certainly within larger society. There seems to be no clarity in working through what's happened in the last two years. Like so, when churches begin this sort of conflict resolution stuff, right? Because they sense there is disunity in the body between those who might have gone toward let's have vaccination passports, let's segregate out the unvaxxed from the vaxxed, and so we came very close. Some churches have done it, um, and and now that they talk about it, it gets sucked into this. And for me, it's a typically North American Canadian psychological nicety, psychology of conflict resolution. You know, these were personal differences we had. Uh, How do we talk about them? Rather than somebody standing up, this is not a personal difference. This is an imposed injustice at 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 the magnitude of racial segregation or something like it that has happened in the world. Injustice of such proportion where I lose my job if I don't conform to the government and you're telling me, Let's just agree to disagree. That's just not going to work. Um, but that seems to be the level at which we're trying to... It's also an issue of justice in terms of how many people have been put into poverty. Yeah, it's unbelievable. To, to acknowledge that seems to be beyond people's ability to face realities, to articulate them, and to be able to face the fight, right, rather than just be nice together. It's just, it's just not going to work. But that seems to be the course that people want to take. So my, my question is, maybe we should start our, our wrap-up with this, is... Um, Doug, over to you for Chesterton. Where where did he see hope? Where did he see that society could work itself out of that um, situation that he foresaw? Well, Chesterton um, focused, uh, I think, politically and socially on on um, the 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 inherent strengths of the human person as created by God. He, he still wanted to see the human as a rational animal uh, endowed by its creator with, with gifts and um, including um, uh, the, the, the capacity to innovate in the circumstances to meet exigencies. So, so his his focus was not on some some grand scheme 
to run counter to the grand scheme of of the eugenists or something, but 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 rather to focus uh, on the on on those qualities of the human being which God has implanted in them, which we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast. Um, now, uh, despite despite foreseeing. Uh, much of what has happened in the 20th century, including what has happened in the last two years. No one saw that more clearly than Chesterton. Um, uh, I, I am not uh, aware of, of uh, much that he uh, said that, that is, is um, a kind of schematic solution to our problems. Uh, I, I, in fact, I doubt that there is any any kind of schematic solution to our problems. I, I, I think what we what we have to do is is um, is what Salafia urges us to do, and and what the others also urge us to do, and that is to look evil squarely in the eye, mm-hmm. and and to decide how we are going to resist it. We certainly don't do that. When we when we retreat into that politeness uh, that we were just speaking of, yeah. we don't even do it in the church if we talk about um, the the uh, harms that say lockdowns have done. That's an important thing to talk about, and 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 uh, Doug Allen is is helping us think about that. Um, we 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 don't do it even if we talk about vaccine damage which you know which we have experience with uh, some of us and which um which more and more is becoming evident to everyone is has been done and 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 probably will be done in the church we do it when we get to grips with um with the question of loyalty to christ so um uh, just a, a week or two after uh, one of my, mo- well, probably, let's be honest, my most favorite theologian, Irenaeus, um, was declared Amen. a doctor of the church, uh, you know, sort of nearly two millennia late in my view, um, uh, and, and was dubbed Dr. Unitatis. The, the, the Quebec government um, and, and some other governments came out with this decree that the churches must divide between the, the, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Thankfully, the parish here in Montreal that, that is named for St. Irenaeus um, refused to do that. Um, but, but the diocese, the archdiocese didn't refuse to do it. Many churches, Protestant and Catholic and, and Orthodox, didn't refuse to do it. And, and, and to me, um, that, that makes, uh, that can't be addressed just on the level of sociological harms, economic harms, psychological harms, or physical harms. It has to be addressed on a theological level and an ecclesiological level. What are we saying about the Lord Jesus Christ? What are we saying about the body of Christ and the church if we submit to those kinds of orders? So, again, violence is being done. It's being done to the church and so also to the Lord of the church. What is our response going to be? And the hardest thing about that is the church isn't united. 
I know at a recent classes meeting of ours, which is a regional gathering of leaders from uh, all churches within a certain geographical region, they separated between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. The unvaccinated were barred from coming to a regional meeting, even though so the only ones there were vaccinated because they were so afraid of the unvaccinated. And I know somebody who wrote a letter and uh, there was not really any kind of theological response. It was uh, it was very, very difficult for him to receive that. But it, this is part of our problem is through the whole COVID thing, you're in a internecine battle, if you will. It's like a battle with your family members. And um, that became very difficult to know how to navigate for me as a pastor as well. And it was really, really hard to figure out what hill am I going to die on? There's a lot of them. <laughs> there are a lot of hills right now. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's Calvary. It is, however, the grace of God that that the last two sh- years have have begun to show us the extent of our flabbiness. Yes, yes, true. Well, I'm going to. I'll, I'll wrap up. I agree. I don't think there's any kind of program with which you can uh, fight this. I think that I'll cite Kierkegaard here. He said. The world may be a system to God, but it is not to any existing individual. So you have to live in truth before God. I think the the focus for me, if the, if the culture has a hope, it's got to come from the church. So I think the church is where you start, where you focus your attention. And I would, you know, what Solzhenitsyn left, you know, when he was banished finally, live not by lies, just don't. You don't have to live by lies. You can't. You don't have to do everything. Don't live by lies. That's all. And I think leave it to God. In the end, let me just say, I'll just tie this back into the book. At the end of uh, that hideous strength, he said, these people have called down heaven on them. Well, we're going to give them heaven. And in the end, God, I mean, you, you mentioned this, Ivan, in one of the early ones, that God's, God's God. And in the end, this is, you know, he's a, like we're in his hands. This is not something we need to worry about. But... We need to be faithful to that and remember that. The question was asked by Jens, and I'll conclude with this and wrap it up. Um, Did Chesterton have a suggestion for any solution? And Douglas uh, said properly that he does not. Um, There's no schematic for this kind of thing. But it does remind me, for the individual Christian, there is a solution in light of this. Not only, of course, to focus on the Lord Jesus and his accomplished work on the cross, but to hold close to ourselves, and never lose uh, what Chesterton called mirth, uh, joy, because we have great reason for joy. And it reminds me of a passage in Chesterton where he talks about how Jesus was not a person who concealed his emotions. He wore them on his sleeve. When he went into the temple, he threw out the tables, and he took a whip, and he drove them out of there. But there was one thing which seemed too enormous, too prodigious, too exceptional for our Lord to show um, the average human being. And that something, Chesterton says, was his mirth. Because God is a God of joy, and the ultimate destiny of the Christian is to enter into that joy with him, as we already have in Christ. So this is our hope, and this is our great joy. So thanks everybody again for joining us, and may the Lord be with you.